It is on this day, February 9th, 2022. I declare the Super Bowl. This one's for Wes. Welcome in a room full of heroes. I am including myself, of course, my former colleague at NFL Network, the great Mark Sessler. He is a hero on the Around the NFL podcast. We are here in remembrance and love for our dear friend, Chris Wesseling, just about a little over a year after his um, passing away. It was shocking. It still leaves a cavernous hole in our hearts, my heart, yours, in the journalistic world. And I think the most beautiful aspect of this entire football season is that Chris Wesseling is scripting from heaven the perfect Wesseling family Super Bowl with his hometown Bengals and Lakeisha's Rams. It is really serendipitous, beautiful, but I don't think Wes would have it any other way. Yeah, I mean, and thanks for having me on to to talk. Like, um, it's been like the most surreal um, NFL narrative that I can really remember uh, to have a team, the Bengals, that a year ago had a promising quarterback, but who had a major knee injury um, to, you know, and, and a, no evidence that the coaching staff uh, knew what to do with the players they had to have a, essentially all of that turn around and for them to go on the journey um, that they've been on. And, you know, I like one um, little anecdote that we've talked about on our show is that um, like Lakeisha Wesling has uh, felt all along and she's certainly someone that, um, you know, has faith in these kind of things that she has been communicated um, by Wes and Wes's spirit to some degree by, um, butterflies that she's seen butterflies in very odd moments around her home and in other places. And um, there was a moment in that Titans um, Bengals game where a butterfly was spotted on down on the sideline of the game. And it was, you know, this was like in ten, this was not a warm day in Nashville. It wasn't like butterfly summery day type stuff. So it was just like another sign um, in that game. Cause that came down to the end. Um, and then of course what happened, like later on, like all the way that they've gotten there in the Chiefs game, which seems so lost, and then to turn it around in such incredible fashion. I mean, they really are a totally unique story, a unique team. And for them to get there and play the Rams, um, yeah, it's like had you want went and written this, it would have been like, what? Well, that's a little too on the nose. Like it's a little too magical, but that it's real life. It's like um, I think we're all still kind of waking up to the reality of that. It is uh, truly remarkable. Uh, his power and his prose. In writing, it was majestic. It um, was Shakespearean. I was just telling you about uh, that West would be proud. I told you a story about it. my 11th grade Brit Lit class. We had to write our journey in Brit Lit. And it was uh, about a journey in iambic pentameter. So I, I wrote about uh, Danny Ainge's journey to nowhere <laughs> after he traded Antoine Walker to the Miami Heat. Um, but Chris often... Uh, took things um, from history. He, uh, you know, yeah, just uh, applied this poetic sense that infused with um, just a, a brilliant, brilliant football mind. And it is so evident by his story. He was a blogger, much like the rest of us. Uh, you know, humble beginnings. Uh, the sons of the, the sons of the frozen tundra. I believe what is that? That's the that's the podcast. He was discovered by Greg Rosenthal. And uh, 
among my searchings and findings, I was trying to find some of his old articles. However, I found uh, the football syllabus of Chris Wesseling's favorite books on NFL.com, which was appropriate. It is about 100 books titled between pro football history, biographies and memoirs, chronicles, football strategy, and the NFL draft. Is that the most Wesseling nugget that you could ever find? I actually did add some of them to my um, my Amazon. Check your out. own syllabus. Good. I mean, yeah, like it is. Um, like I think of, uh, I w before I knew that Wes was even going to come to the NFL and before, you know, Greg Rosenthal brought him over to NFL.com, um, you know, to start that journey. Uh, he and I met um, and interacted on Twitter a little bit because we would tweet and like, I I'd see him and like, I just loved the way that he described the game and, but also um, would go beyond football because like it was cl really clear to me from a distance without knowing him personally that he was um, deeply into books and really well read. And uh, like I, we connected initially on this book called a fans notes, um, which should be in that syllabus. It's by Frederick Exley. It's, um, it's a, it's a non-fictional slash fictional account of this guy's like autobiographical obsession with the New York giants, but a lot of other stuff was going on. And it was like, it, 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 I always think of West because of it. And like, I think, you know, hundreds of people that listen to our show because we've talked about that book have picked it up. And I think they kind of get um, where West was coming from with that novel, how it affected him because, you know, Exley was a football obsessive, a little bit on the outskirts of society. And, you know, West went through those periods himself with his jobs. I mean, really all of us did, we didn't take the knit, like the straight road into journalism. Um, and Wes, yeah. who was famously a mailman um, in, in, the, in the streets of Cincinnati and uh, did all sorts of jobs and stuff. But uh, like another note, um, when I was thinking about Wes and books was I, I remember this one Super Bowl, this I would have been maybe five years ago or more where, um, you know, we were coming home on a charter NFL network flight and it was like free drinks and it's the, you know, the season's over and people were, um, lighting it up, but then West was not in the mood. I mean, sometimes he would be, but in this in this particular flight, he was over on an on a seat by the window um, with the little light shining down on him, and he had his Kindle out, and he loved to like take a book and he would outline it obsessively and highlight it and copy things down. So you know, I think I sometimes I'll read a book and I love it, but then I'll go look at it a year later. And I'm like, I act, forgot eighty seven percent of this book, and I'm just yeah. like discovering it again. He had incredible recall, and I think that. He would, the way that he would um, absorb books and articles, I mean, huge articles too. He would keep these long lists of stuff. And it showed, I think, his organized mind, but his um, method and ability to recall stuff that he read and things that really impacted them. I mean, it, it made a huge difference in our podcast because of his ability to do that, but certainly in his writing. And one of the first things that I did when he started at NFL.com, because I was a relatively new football writer um, mm -hmm. in, in like I like writing more than I like football writing. And I think that Wes brought some of that too, that like football writing, there's a lot of good football writing still, um, but it's hard, it's not across the board. I mean, it's become a little bit different. And I think that he was someone that grew up waiting for Sports Illustrated to arrive, um, yeah. typically on like a Thursday afternoon and read those long articles that came with such meaning and depth. And in all his pieces that I would go, re I'd go read what he wrote on NFL.com and he made me a better writer. He made me that much percentage of a better writer because I would learn from him, who I'm sitting four feet away from in a cubicle, um, what would come out of him when he wrote. Like I just would learn, and I was like, you know what? This is a really unique, um, a really unique analyst 
who matches that with really unique um, insights and life experiences and like historical knowledge, book knowledge. And it somehow all comes across in these little four or 500 word yeah. football articles. So he was, he was really one of a kind on that front there. I, I can't think of anyone else, one, anyone else just like him at all. I'm pretty sure that Chris Wessling was the first person to identify that Tom Brady has had three hall of fame careers in a yeah, row. It's the first person I heard say that. And then, I'm and the then, first person now. yeah. And like came, and then suddenly everyone did. He also, um, you know, he came up with the Dalton line, the Andy Dalton line, which was a huge part of our show. And I think that you, know, that you saw that started to get, you know, people would write about that and comment about that, that anyone who was better than Andy Dalton was someone you could potentially trust as a franchise quarterback. But if you did your tiers of quarterbacks, anyone from Andy Dalton on down, you needed to be shopping around for something better because he was annoyed with the Andy Dalton led Bengals era. I mean, which, yeah. you know, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. That's the Dalton line, correct? Yeah. That's the Dalton the, line. Absolutely. Yeah, the Dalton yeah. line. The mm -hmm. Dalton line. Um, what is the hardest part about reliving these memories of Chris with your colleagues on the Around the NFL podcast and, um, it, does it does it get any easier? They they say that in grief you move on, but that whole never heals. Yeah, it doesn't. I like um, and I you know I, we I think we each obviously have our individual um, reactions to over the past year plus um, to what's happened, and like we're all different. But for me personally, um, someone kind of just said like grief in general is just it's not a the people describe it the way you just did, but there's no straight line to it. And and sometimes like you just um, are going to deal with law, like a loss for the rest of your life. And like, um, mm -hmm. I, like, I don't like, I, I don't really think that I feel much better about anything or any closure. And I, like, I, I think if anything, um, what has, what makes it tough, although it can galvanize you because you, you want to go remember Wes in the best possible way and be the best version of yourself when, especially going and doing the show that we all did together, but um, it's healing to do the show. And it has been because we've taught, we, I think we've taken an approach where like, let's just be honest and open about how much we miss our friend, our colleague, um, this totally unique person. But it's also your like football just will never really be the same for me. Um, I feel a real connection to West because of the way that we were fans and like um, how we kind of just would love to go, go out and hang out as friends, but football would become part of the part of the conversation. But like the going through the machinations of a long regular season in the playoffs, like I found it um, a struggle this year, to be honest, because all I could like, sometimes like you're lifted away on um, the, the day, the news of the day and you're in, in like the job in, in it's in itself. But often you're just feeling like I'm, I can still miss the, like the, there's a hole in our show where like Wes's laugh would be um, where Wes is like, reactions to things would be where like the West personality would be. And I think we all just, you know, the listeners, all of us just recognize that it will never quite be the same. Um, but speaking for myself, I, yeah, I mean, cause I'll ramble when I talk on this topic because I, I don't feel closure. I don't like, yeah. it's just like, and I don't expect to at this point. I think the thing now is like, um, I don't expect like a neat um, conclusion to that. I, I'll be thinking about it and him and what happened and the way it went down for the rest of my life. Yeah. Well, let's hold his thoughts up high because I know he's watching this show somewhere up in the interwebs, observing as a producer. Hey, Wes, I need a producer. You're hired. <laughs> um, it's funny that you say like you go through life and there's certain things, uh, Saturdays that 
out drinking, but they always include football and uh, a, a pickup softball game or, you know, the big egg grill. Have you seized the best version, the Westivist version of yourself? I, I almost want to, I have to think about this, how I want to term it, but things that Chris did the best in life. Have you adapted those qualities, characteristics? Have you, um, have you mastered your grilling game? <laughs> um, well, like for, for, I, like I was quite different than Wes in certain ways. Cause like I'm vegetarian. So like, oh. um, there's that, but like on that front, I would say I've not mastered, um, a grilling game. Uh, but I, I like my, my, my most honest answer, because I'd, I'd rather just like, I like, no, like, I don't think, I think like the last year has been a little bit of a train wreck and like, but I, but I think that when we end all our shows with like, heed the call, like I think about that all the time. And, um, I do think that I've spent the year trying to just be closer to like the real, um, it, I don't want to use like a therapy term or something, but like the real authentic version of who I am. And I've tried to strip away a lot of stuff that I think was just kind of fake about myself, to be honest. Um, I don't know. It's hard to describe that, but like, that's the, that's the, like, the, that's me trying to be m m like more the real me because the one thing I always felt about Wes and um. I didn't envy it in him. I admired it in him because I think he really, really knew who he was and he really understood his own. He, he was aware of his own ups and downs and his faults, but like, um, he really seemed to be on a quest to, and he changed so much from the guy that I first met who came to Los Angeles, who could not have been more of a fish out of water. And, um, I think he was like unsure why he was in LA for a lot of reasons. And like, you know, he was single and he was just like, he just, it, he wasn't your typical LA person on any level, but he yeah. grew and changed when he met Lakeisha. I mean, that really was the spark. Um, that's what I think about, that we can still, there's still more um, we can do to change and grow. And so I don't think I've accomplished it this year. I mean, personally, on any, like really at all, but um, like the way I'd want to, but uh, I will, I think he's one of those friends or one of those people in your life that will always galvanize you um, inside. And so that's what I'd say. It's like that whatever it is I could do to get, to have more of those qualities. Like it's just, I'm still on that journey, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Well, you, you will achieve it's day by day. I, we'll see. Baby steps, you know, less <laughs> in grief on the bad signal podcast. Then that was, you know, beautiful. And yes, we miss you. Well, uh, the first wish that you can ask Chris is, uh, you know, to, to bless the Cleveland Browns, obviously. <laughs> well, I think, uh, I think it's, there are two teams from Ohio that struggled for decades and decades. And, you know, one of the last, weeks of football. Um, and one of, I think it was our second to last show that we did, um, was Cleveland's playoff win over the Steelers. And there was something about that, um, because he knew how, I mean, the Browns were a disaster for, yeah. had been for so long. And he saw me suffer through that. And like, you know, you get made fun of in the newsroom and everyone's laughing at like Johnny Manziel and everyone else. It's like, it was a bit of a chore to like track that team professionally. And, um, so I think that was an interesting event. Um, to have as one of my last sort of face-to-face -face online encounters with Wes. Yeah. Um, oh. But I think the, the Bengals story, <laughs> bless you, the Bengals story is um, is so much richer and more uh, fulfilling. Like all his brothers are, are coming out to the game. Um, it's just something that's been so perfect. And like, we don't really know. Wes had a very conflicted relationship with the Bengals. I mean, he had written them off because of ownership's um, handling of the team, mishandling of the team for years. But it was funny because I was talking to his brother, Nick, who came out to LA this past weekend. And like, 
we were just kind of like, would you think Wes would like this Bengals team? And he's like, I do. That, that's his brother. Who, like he and his brother, like would like they were two peas in a pod. They would argue about sports all day long. And I think it's the Joe Burrow factor that the team has changed. They're spending a little bit more money here and there. But overall, the idea that this is happening to the Bengals over the Browns feels about a thousand times more um, real to me and, and meaningful. Because I don't think like Wes never really liked the Browns at all because that he, he didn't lose his dislike of the Browns. So that I don't think he was going to wave any magic wands over Cleveland. Do you thank Odell Beckham's father for, uh, you know, posting that video about how terrible Baker Mayfield is? Look, my son's, but are, are you, are you happy about that? Or it's almost no. kind of like, the, you know, like, Hey, he, all he needed was a, was a nice, fresh change a good offense odell is is back i would totally say that he has lived up to his potential but it also comes at the expense of a a a, 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 a waning a hurting browns fan yeah i don't know i mean it's like i i kind of like at this point because like i'm not the 12 year old me that's like um freaking out over the team i mean mostly most of the time but um i i guess i kind of get odell beckham wanting to read do the narrative and, and change his value. And I, yeah. it, it didn't work in Cleveland, but I didn't love the way that that went out. And I think it's sort of annoying that like, um, we're at the point now, like a couple months later where it's like, he's being like overtly praised for like, it, I, they're not talking about the Cleveland thing, but it's like, well, what a great, what a great thing for Odell Beckham to be here and like achieving his value. It's like, okay, you also walked out on your team to some degree. Um, yeah. But this is pro sports and like, I get it. Um, he, I don't find him to be like a hero figure, but I do find that he under, I think he made a smart move for himself. I'll leave it there. I mean, I think it left the Browns in disarray because it, I think it, 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 it put Baker Mayfield into a really bad place. Who's already struggling through a bad season and, and, and injured. And it's like, I don't know. I think that the, like the feel good narrative around Cleveland from where we were a season ago or an off season ago is completely gone. And, and now it, with the, with the Bengals rising up, Cleveland's now the last place team in the division. I mean, the Steelers, but it's like, I, yeah. I don't, Cleveland's quarterback issues and everything else suddenly feel very problematic all over again. So um, we're right back where we started. <laughs> well, it seems like there's a somewhat of a power shift in the AFC North, a division that was much uh, maligned at times and dominated by the Steelers and the come up and the, the power behind the Browns. I, I still believe in Baker Mayfield. If Baker Mayfield wants to stay in Cleveland and commit to the team, I, I still think he has the capability. I love his quarterback, Moxie. I love the power. Um, you know, just in the confidence. You could just – confidence is everything, man. And look at Joe Burrow, you know, walking in with some Cartier shades and, and you know, telling kids don't post your videos on Instagram if you want to be a, a recruit. You know, work in silence. I mean, like, you know, that carries far. Baker Baker has some of that. But um, what can you expect from the power shift in in the AFC North with uh, the imminent hiring of the Steelers' new general manager? I am hoping that it's Lewis Riddick. Uh, that would be a fantastic hire for him, for them as well, um, just causing an, an immense power shift among, uh, you know, rightfully so, among African-Americans in positions of power as general managers, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what can you expect? Is, is it, where, who's, who's rising and who's falling? 
Because we, well, can, we, we can't forget the Ravens as well. I, like we're suddenly like, like it, this, I don't think two months ago, anyone would have felt this was totally feasible, but like it's the Bengals and everyone else right now. I think that, yeah. I think I'd go, I'd go Bengals um, because of Burrow, because they still have a ton of money to spend this off season if they want, because they're willing to spend money. They can fix their offensive line to some degree. Um, they weren't like the team that you would have looked at as the best roster in the yeah. division or in the AFC in general, like a couple months ago, but it kind of shows you that um, like everything you said about Baker Mayfield, I think is true to some degree, but it's completely true about Joe Burrow. And he just like has backed it up in such a, in such a tangible way that he's the best quarterback in the division. He's a top four, three or four quarterback in the league right now, I think with the brightest future around. And so um, suddenly, cause we had like Marlon Humphreys on our show today um, at radio row. And like, I think for other players in the division, like you're having to like shift the way that you think Because he talked about how, you know, when he came to the Ravens, it was Pittsburgh and Baltimore. That's all it was like. And then you got these two ham and eggers from Ohio that you beat up on, you know, four times a year, but, but that's not the case now. And I think it's a, it's a mental shift for even the players in those um, in those two organizations to realize Bengals ripped those two teams apart um, this season. And they're, and that's not going away right now. Um, I would put the Ravens next because um, their resiliency and just who they are as an organization, like, yeah, we just remember they didn't make the playoffs, like the, what they went through injury wise and how, how John Harbaugh guided them through that season. Um, I think they have some questions or on, on both sides of the ball that, but yeah. I always trust them to fix that. Then I think it's question marks. Cleveland's got a good roster, but I, I just don't like what happened this season. And I, I really think that Baker Mayfield could be in his final year there. I, I wouldn't put it beyond that front office. Um, by doing something quite surprising this offseason, depending on what was available as well. And then Pittsburgh's searching for a quarterback. And like I if they if they decide to stick with Mason Rudolph and try to sell tickets that way, good luck to you. Because I think yeah. I I don't assume they will. And I think if you've got a Lewis Riddick in there, it's a great landing spot because they're not a trigger finger organization. He will have time to establish and do what he can do. And I I think that they um that would be a very interesting hire, but I don't think that he would sit around with Mason Rudolph as, as his QB one going into uh, September. No, certainly not with uh, a guy like Sean Taylor on his resume. The players, if you go back and the players that he acquired during his time in front office positions with the Washington Commanders, uh, the Washington of, of yonder year, <laughs> uh, the Redskins, and um the Philadelphia Eagles as well uh you know it's a certain certainly an eye for talent I I I hope that he gets that job it is as we're uh, approaching the salary cap crossroads of the NFL offseason everyone's favorite uh topic before the NFL draft and we get all nerdy but you know it seems to me where does the secondary quarterback market stand I think in the offseason Joe Burrow is setting a standard for, you know, the younger, newer generation as we just set Tom Brady off into the sunset. Yeah. Um, that, you know, the, the the value for a guy like that is is skyrocketing. And where can we, uh, you know, see the the numbers for where is there, a, you know, a need for backup quarterbacks? Like, uh, you know, Andy Dalton's still cashing in big checks. Well, I think like you're, I mean, backup quarterbacks are immensely <clears throat> important because, you know, they could be the difference for a, truly successful Super Bowl caliber type team if they have to patch that guy in for two or three games between home field advantage and having to go on the road in the playoffs like and yeah. we, you know we've seen that like over and over I mean I think what when when I think about Joe Burrow and <clears throat> you could throw Patrick Mahomes in here 
Josh Allen, but Josh Allen had a couple of years where he struggled. Like Joe Burrow doing this in year two puts yeah. so much heat on someone like a Daniel Jones, where it's like, excuse me, yeah. but I still need four. There's a lot of weird stuff happening around me. Um, I believe in myself or the organization maybe does, but we're getting into year four and then year five. And like, we're not seeing it. The quarterbacks now are expected to, if you're a first round quarterback, thrive right away. I think that's why there's so many issues with the perception of Baker Mayfield. And it's like Joe Burrow, Patrick Mahomes, these guys put, they changed the way the expectations around young quarterbacks, which I mean, if you go back and look at um, like the career of Phil Sims or someone um, from the eighties, he had multiple seasons where he was injured. He barely started games. It was like a long experiment to try to grow this quarterback. They would never be allowed today. And, and also you get two coaches fired along the way. So I think everything um, there's a speeding up of everything. And I think that we're quarterbacks are coming to us in a much more, complete fashion. I mean, Justin Herbert's another great example. He didn't even know that he was going to start week one of his rookie season until Tyrod Taylor received that, you know, ill shot from the doctor and then bang, he's in there and he's never, he's never skipped a beat. So that's the new kind of, that's the bar being set. And I think the secondary market, the teams that are looking at quarterbacks is like when you, you know, when the bears put out like Andy Dalton as our QB one, it's laughable because we all get that Andy Dalton's not a QB one and don't try to sell that to fans because they're too savvy at this point. You have one of those guys or you don't, there is that second class or third tier where you can win with these dudes. I mean, people won with case Keenum here and there, but is it a long-term answer? It's like, you're almost um, playing with house money if you win with them for a year. But like, ideally like the, the way now is first round quarterback or you do what the Rams did. We're yeah. going to go change our, we're going to sell the future for a Russell Wilson, a Matt Stafford, a Matthew Stafford, excuse me. They don't like you yeah, calling him Matthew Stafford or Matt Stafford. So, but that's the move. It's like, if you don't have the guy in the Rams, I thought were it was a year ago to the year. It was to the year before the NFC title game that Matthew Stafford helped them win was like, we're not satisfied with Jared Goff. Yeah. Sorry. We, we like, we've given him time, but um, we're looking elsewhere. And like, what else can we say that then that gamble completely paid off? It's really the curse of the third year quarterback. After three years, it's a real litmus test of, all right, hurry up. What have you given us lately? And then the the the, the ideas and the questions start to creep in. And you could see that situation as well with Tua Tunga-Bailoa. And I mean, how many times are people this offseason going to be talking about possibly trading for Jalen Hurts? All right. right. It, you know, I, I mean, it, I, is his job secure? I, I wouldn't be surprised if if he was, you know, if he was in discussions, if a team wanted to, you know, wanted to swoop him up and didn't feel like he was in the, the proper system or, or utilized. I, I just, it's, it's gotten to that point. If you don't show me something after three years, your job is in jeopardy, but yeah. that, that's pretty savage of the NFL these days, but that's the way the league is moving. I think so, because I think number one, if, if a coaching staff doesn't show results in three years, yeah. um, then, you know, I, I think there's tangible reason to think that a coaching staff should th show results in three years. And, yeah. you know, specifically with the Eagles, I, I get the feeling they'd be fine staying with Jalen Hurts because I think he showed a lot of promise, but they're, they're in a weird place or a, a unique place where they've got three first round picks. Uh, they've got all the draft capital, obviously, to go make a major trade or a move for someone. And right now it's like, oh, everyone's staying where they are. Well, we'll see how that goes. But in reverse, you could sell Jalen Hurts as a piece that another team could plug in as a starter right away. Now, if they had wandering eyes for someone else, I, 
Do you want to trade Jalen Hurts for a 38-year-old veteran? I mean, if it's Aaron Rodgers, yes. I mean, I don't think that's a landing spot for him, but um, the Eagles have as much you know leverage and ability to make moves as any team in the league because of that Carson Wentz trade, because of how they moved up and down the board a year ago. So I, I just think it, you know, where the NFL offseason used to follow certain predictable beats on the quarterback market and Stafford started this, Tom Brady had a lot to do with this. Um, like it was Russell Wilson who was up in the press box, very annoyed seeing that Tom Brady was winning a Super Bowl with Tampa Bay. And like that, I mean, it's just like a lot of these quarterbacks are watching empowered veterans go from A to B and, and, and do their, organize their own future. We don't know what's going on with Kyler Murray. It's just that nothing would surprise me at this point with like major QB movement in any offseason. It really makes me happy that the Patriots got it right after all of those Cam Newton fans coming after me saying, oh, you're so excited to have a white quarterback. I just want anyone on my team that can move the ball. You know, uh, I it'd be interesting to see. I really hope the Patriots bring in Bill O'Brien. I think that a familiar face, a familiar foe, he has known and worked in the system. How can we forget when Tom Brady and Bill O'Brien were screaming at each other, cursing right. left and right. Oh yeah, no, we're just buds. He fits into the system. I, I would say of, of all people that I would be willing to give the reins after Bill Belichick, it would either be Brian Flores or Bill O'Brien. So come back home. Um, are you surprised by um, the turnaround? Are, are you impressed by what the Patriots have, have done in this offseason? Do you think that they're um, far off? And then I will follow up with, uh, I, I just want a big soliloquy of, of my dear friend, Mac Jones, because he is just warming my heart after this. The Pro Bowl was terrible. Ah, Mac Jones. <laughs> I mean, on the Patriots front, like I, I just think that Belichick gives you, he's one of those few coaches that gives you a, a massive advantage based on his, you know, innate skills, like his ability to, you know, build a roster. I mean, he's done a good job with that. Not, not perfect, but in general, his historical knowledge of like the league and stuff. I mean, he's just a, he's the best coach ever. And so that's going to like, it's going to, a rebuilding mission is going to go much more smoothly with him than hiring and firing coaches and GMs. And they've just been so consistent. They know exactly what kind of players they want. And it was a great landing spot for Mac Jones or really anyone they drafted because of the way that that organization's run. So I'm not surprised. I mean, I think that they, I think their free agent signings um, for the most part were positive. Um, it, it seemed a little more, it seemed a little desperate for how New England typically operates, but yeah. I don't think he wanted to spend um, three years with the roster he had the season before, and they didn't do that. I mean, there's been also a lot, they deal with coaching drain year after year. I mean, it's the, it's the one organization that gets picked apart in the front office, we've seen it with Nick Casario going. Josh McDaniels pulled his guy out of there. And one assistant after the next gets pulled out of there. And so I, I guess if you're Belichick, when you bring a Bill O'Brien back or you bring like a Joe Judge back, like you want to work with known quantities. And like, I think that, you know, the Patriots are going to press. I mean, that, that division's changed a lot. Buffalo is the class of that. But I didn't think that two months ago. I, I thought that New England in that first win over Buffalo, that was a huge moment that put the bills on the precipice of like psychological disorder, because yes. I mean, had they lost to new England in the, again, it would have been a real mess. So um, I think they're right in the mix in, in today's NFL. The parody is so insane that like 
a 10 win team can go to the Super Bowl. So why aren't they part of that discussion? Yeah, certainly the Patriots have uh, done their due diligence to open their checkbooks. And I, I think the biggest question in the offseason was, is, is it Tom Brady? A free agent wants to come to New England and play for or is it Bill Belichick? Well, if it's like, hey, what happened to that old Tom guy? Here's 20 million guaranteed. That's that's why you're gonna come here. Um, I, I I like the power shift. I like the change, you know. I mean, Bill is turning 70 in April. I know that because he's the same year as my mom. Um, he nice. yeah, he's get he's getting up there in age, he's turning 70 in April. And I, I think that it's in the win now mode that would be in his, you know, in his best favor. And now he's got Tom out of the league. He can do and say whatever he wants. He can stay as long as he wants. He can go after that Don Shula uh, coaching record. And uh, specifically in a talent like Mac Jones, who uh, maybe he's, he seems like he's got a couple of screws loose, much, much like Brady. I mean, intricate to details, um, uh, the very sensitive overworking, uh, constantly studying and reading the playbook. There was rumors in the preseason that Mac Jones was helping Cam Newton learn the playbook in, um, in training camp. That was the word going around the airwaves up there in Boston. But, um, uh, what surprised you the most about, uh, this young quarterback out of Alabama? Um, I, I just hope that he spends his winters in Canada or something. He's got to get, he's got to get thicker blood. I, I, cause I, I'm not convinced as his, as his uh, talent kind of steeped down a slow winding hill, it was uh, colder and colder. So the Jacksonville boy, welcome to new England. He's got to buckle up, but I, you know, I, well, I I'd just, say Tom Brady was from California too. So it's like, maybe you can acclimate. I mean, I wonder like with these rookie quarterbacks that go from, playing, you know, X amount of games to way more regular season games. I think that first year there's on top of everything else that you're just adapting to and taking in and putting everything on your shoulders, the way that he did, um, that the season's long. And I, like, I, he melted a little bit down the stretch and like, um, you got a little concerned about any game where they had to put it on him entirely. But I mean, he was the best rookie quarterback of the mix. Yeah. Um, I don't think people thought that would be, they obviously didn't think that would be the case for the teams that drafted other quarterbacks above him. Yeah. Um, but he landed in the right place and he, I don't know. I think he's got to like, there's nothing not to like about him as being a really functional starter that does some things really well. Um, he football is super important to him and that's the kind of player the Patriots want. I think a lot of it is like fit team and player fit and like, um, they fit. I mean, they do. And like, I think that like there were a couple, you know, I think that what gets lost in some of the regression that happened towards the end of the year where, some insane throws he made and like some of the, some of his decision-making in some games he had where he had, I mean, in a good way, streaky, good, you know, quarters in a row, you saw it. And I think that like there, that that's a great player to build around. I mean, go back to like Tom Brady's first year. I mean, it was a different time in football in general, but like being a rookie, I just think would be such a, like your mind would be like constantly catching up to what's going on around you. And I thought he did a great job with that. Like he just, he never, he seemed unflappable to me. Um, he has the personality for a quarterback yeah. and, um, you know, it, it came a long way from the way people felt about him after his pro day where, you know, just, it was like, okay, um, I guess this guy is going to be a starter, but he, I thought he was thoroughly impressive for a first year guy. Of the other five quarterbacks that were taken in the first round, uh, who has the most 
highest upside in this upcoming season. Assuming that Jimmy Garoppolo is going to be shipped out of San Francisco, a lot of questions out there. Uh, does Trey Lance step in the stage, step in the spotlight as the next best now second year quarterback, or is it Justin Fields with uh, Matt Eberflus? Under- I like, yeah, I like Justin Fields. Like I don't, I kind of don't get that higher. Um, nothing against Matt Eberflus, but like, I thought that would have been an offensive minded hire. So you don't yeah. like do the thing where let's say they, they hire an OC, he comes in fields thrives that OC gets an interview and gets a coaching job. You got to start over on offense. It's kind of like yeah. the bills were lucky to keep Brian Dable around for as long as they did, but then you're going to lose Brian Dable because your head coach is not Sean McVay married to your quarterback the same way. Now it's, that's not all black and white, but it's just that it's a, it's a concern for continuity. Um, I I'd go like if, I want to see what happens with Trey Lance. He clearly wasn't ready to play this year. And I think they always sort of said, this is a red, red shirt candidate. Um, but it's a great system for quarterbacks. Shanahan has a full off season to work with him. I mean, he does some things um, visually that are incredible. So I would just bank or I would, I would gamble on um, quarterback X and Kyle Shanahan every time. I just, I think that you're going to get the best version of him coming into next season and an offense that looks um, a little different to maximize his skill, but if he can, if you can get like the quarterback in that system that is not making the two or three killer Jimmy G, or not waiting for that killer error that Jimmy G did, and then imagine how you can use Debo Samuel if the deep ball improves, if certain things yeah. about all that um, are arrow up. I mean, that offense looks like um, very powerful to me. I mean, I think they overachieved as a team as much as anyone in the league to get to the NFC title game with what with who they had playing quarterback. Last question around the NFL. I'm thinking about the geography of things. How many more years does Cliff Kingsbury have in Arizona? I, you know, I, I, yeah, I don't know because I there there was a point where I think he was certainly a candidate to lose to lose his job this off season. Um, it's yeah. a, it's obviously late for that to happen now. Um, it's not too late. I, weirder things have happened, but. Um, this thing that's hanging out there with Kyler Murray, uh, you know, which I, there, I think there's, to me, that feels like a, a play for an extension or more money um, or more commitment. Um, but the way they way that Kyler Murray and the way that Cliff Kingsbury went out um, with a total dud of a playoff game, capping off a complete swoon um, over the last month and a half where the offense looks so disorganized. And that should be the selling point for Cliff Kingsbury. And I mean, if you look at his record too, like, everything after, you know, eight or nine games, all his teams trail off a cliff. So um, not to go, not to use the word cliff twice, but like, um, I just, yeah, I think like, I think he's, he, he enters next year. I thought he came in this year on the hot seat. Then they got off to that hot start and he was fine. It looked great. But now he's, he's firmly on the hot seat with guys like Matt Rule and others where it's like a slow start could have you out of there real early because that team does not feel happy right now. And it starts with a quarterback. Yeah. It's so interesting to see what is the latest, what, what happened with uh, Kyler Murray deleted all his social media and yeah. What? Like he, so he won, he was in the pro bowl and like he deleted everything, but um, a pro bowl image um, from this past weekend. And then an image like a college, I think a college era type and he just uh, down to two things. He removed scrubbed all references to the Cardinals. I mean, this happens. I also, part of me is also like, I'll wait to see what happens with this because who knows what's going on with someone's social media branding or if someone came in to, you know, but, but I, I do think that it's a player that also, if you look at his comments at the end of the year, 
Um, I think he's just very unhappy with what happened over the last month and a half. And I think his value, you're, this is someone that's looking for an extension um, yeah. at some point. Um, you want to go out like Josh Allen. You don't want to go out like Kyler Murray if you're looking for money. So it's, 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 it put him in a tough spot. And I think he's disappointed with the overall environment. Well, the big game on Sunday, where will you be sitting with the Wesseling family? Because I'm assuming that you're going to the game with them as well. I am going, but we will be, I think we're going to try to go see them, but we'll be up in a press box, not the main one, but some sort of yeah. side press box, um, which is where we go uh, for work and stuff. But I will definitely find a way to get down to get to their section um, and, and just see what's good. Cause you know, with, the, with those brothers, you don't know if they're going to, they could start arguing like it's, they're, they're wonderful, but there there's a lot of unpredictable um, avenues. So um, we'll see them, but um, like most of it, it's still a work day kind of. So it's, uh, you know, it's how it plays out. Yeah. Uh, in terms of this matchup between the Bengals and the Rams, and I'm, I'm sure that you have uh, analyzed and overanalyzed and you're all 22s and your notebooks and pages and outlines and highlights, uh, much like our friends uh, would be doing over there at NFL Network. But um, an interesting matchup that I have is one between the wide receivers. And um, if you look at the Vegas books, they have um, shortened down that over under, which is kind of an indication that they expect this to be a lower scoring game, a defensive minded game. Remember that the last time the Rams were in the Super Bowl, it was 13 to three. So couldn't get anything offensively going uh, against Bill Belichick's defense, but that was years ago. But I, I think that this is going to come down to which barn burner, which, which cheetah, which, which super fast shifty wide receiver. Is it Jamar Chase or Cooper Cup is going to seize their superpower and stretch the field and really make a dominant impact for their team? Yeah, I, mean, I, I agree with you that like I, I think we are kind of just our tendency is to talk quarterbacks and the offenses, but it's like the Rams defense um, when they're on is, you know, is star built and really powerful. And I, I'm really concerned about if I'm the Bengals. Aaron Donald against like your center and two guards, because we saw what what's happened to Joe Burrow. I mean, he handles it really well, but still it's duress is duress. And that just sets up your secondary for big plays. And um, for me, Cooper cup hasn't been stopped. He just hasn't yeah. been stopped anywhere. So it's like, I kind of just assume Cooper cup will get his 120 yards off of eight catches. Um, you hope that those come in the middle of the field and they aren't touchdowns, but um, Jamar Chase a little bit, a little bit more up and down. I mean, the Bengals offense in general, I mean, they've had these explosive Sundays, but not in the playoffs. I mean, there's a reason we're talking about Evan McPherson over and over. It's like, they've been more too much of a field goal offense. And so I guess if you got that version of the Bengals and you got a Rams team that on offense, I feel like when they're hot for two quarters, looks like a Super Bowl winner. And then they have these like, quarters where they vanish and disappear. They let the bucks back into the game. They let the Niners back in, uh, in, in week 18. It's like these, they didn't have, the Niners didn't even have to be in the NFC title game. It's like the Rams allowed that to happen. Yeah. And I'm sometimes get concerned with the Los Angeles experience overall, where it's like, they seem to get tight. And when they fumble into their own mistakes, and if you get a Matthew Stafford, you know, inter, a couple interceptions yeah, from him, everything changes. Yeah. And I, I don't expect Burrow to make those, same mistakes, frankly. So I, to me, it's an unpredictable game, but I wouldn't be surprised if it were more low scoring than some expect. Although I think on our website, I 
had it like 40 something to 30 something. So oh, who, who knows? Yeah. Cover I, I all think, bases. Yeah. I think it could be something like 30, 17. Um, listen, I haven't really publicly made my decision, but I, I'm, I'm leaning towards uh, the Bengals much for a lot of what you said. Uh, the Rams to me are, are, are bend and break. Uh, there have been times that I've watched them late in games, uh, their ability to blow leads, um, to come back. And uh, it just, the, yeah, the, the simple mistakes, putting pressure on Matthew Stafford, uh, rushing the line of scrimmage, confusing him, having his go, th go through all his reads and his routes. Um, he just seems to make that one Jimmy G mistake. You know, like Jimmy, Jimmy Garoppolo always makes that one mistake. But um, in this game, because of how locked down the uh, Bengals secondary has been, Jesse Bates, what a season for him. Um, Luana Rumo, the defensive coordinator, picking Eli Apple up off the streets after, you know, he, he coached him with the Giants. Eli Apple was written off. He is having a fantastic season. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think that that secondary is, is getting ready to hunt. And there's plenty of tape and film on Matthew Stafford and, and his ability to, uh, you know, turn over the ball. I mean, man, 13 years in, in, in Detroit, we can go pull up that film. Why not? Yeah. And like, I mean, I think the Bengals secondary has won them two games in a row. I mean, to some degree, it's like they, they're playing with extreme confidence. And I, I kind of just think a team like the Bengals where you don't have in your mind, um, you know, three years of play, like ugly playoff defeats, like, Oh, we're back in this place again. It's like, they just don't even know what they don't know about the postseason, and And they're, they're playing with extreme confidence and like, they on paper, they're not as good as the Rams. I mean, outside of what I think Joe Burrow just lifts everything up, like, and, and, and maybe their, their wide receiver group, they're just not like the Rams are better team on paper in a lot of ways. But I don't know if that matters at this point. Like, I just think that yeah. um, the journey for Cincinnati has been so unique. And this is sort of how sports just work sometimes that like, I, I whenever I start to think, wait a minute, the Rams probably are going to win this thing by 10 plus points because the when they're good, they are the best. They're the, they could be the best team in the league. And it, like if they if you get the great Matthew Stafford game, they might be unstoppable. But like the Bengals kind of just neutralize all those thoughts in the mind because of the way they've been. They just overcome everything. So I I I am maybe a little more less numbers approach sometimes and just like go with my feelings. And like I'm leaning towards Cincinnati too. I don't know what the score will be, but that's where I'm leaning. And also I think from my heart. <laughs> My heart too. Yeah. I think that uh, the the health of Cam Akers is going to be a huge indication of of the uh, run pass ratio. If if Matthew Stafford is going to be, I mean, obviously establishing the run is uh, it's the most important thing in the NFL besides uh, controlling the line of scrimmage. We know what Sony Michelle is capable of doing, but um, I, I think that's going to be a huge indication of of where this game is going to be going. If, you know, if, if, if Stafford's going to be having to, you know, throw through the air, much like Joe Burrow as well. You know, I, I think that they are, uh, you know, Zach Taylor comes out. He's a very pass heavy, um, you know, coach in terms of his game plan, but it should be very interesting to see who will take uh, that, that risky step. Who is, who is going to uh, step beyond, uh, you know, the, I don't know. I think that's a great point though, because it's like, wait, I, I kind of want, I look at the Rams sometimes and like just the look on Sean McVay's face. And it's like, they just seem to have like a vice grip of pressure around them to make this yeah. work, to make all of this, you know, turn into a Lombardi trophy. 
Bengals a little bit looser, obviously, but still it's like, they've never been here. So it's, it's like, um, it kind of might come down to it. Like which team comes out feeling themselves super loose. And in a Super Bowl, I think more than any other games, if you come out and dominate early and someone gets up 17 to three and you're clicking, I, I, I'm not sure the other team in that equation in this game um, would come back. It's interesting because the AFC is now the home team because they switch off every year. So although the Rams are playing in their own stadium, they're going to be in the visitor's locker room. That might mess yeah. up their psyche a little bit. I, you know, I, I just really thinking into the, uh, the, the, the analytics of things. Think about that. You're walking into the Super Bowl and then you're, you know, parking in your parking spot. And then you're like, I got the trashy locker room. If any, that, that's, that's true because also it's like, you're, is it a distraction if they're, I mean, I'm sure they're in a hotel by now and stuff, yeah, but it's no. like, you still have, you know, your home world around you. Can that maybe for some people be, take your head out of the game a little bit, but if any team along with the chargers has practiced at playing at home in, you know, they had to play with a silent count with all the Niners fans yeah. in there in the NFC title game. So it's like, maybe in a way that's kind of like to their advantage. It's not what you want. Um, it's not where the Rams want to be fan wise three or four or five years from now, but they have experience in their own building being treated like visitors to some degree. So maybe it's, it won't be held as such an, a, a fresh insult. They're kind of used to it, you know? Yeah. I'm excited to see the the crowds. I'm excited to get in the game, do some grilling. I got to make my plans. I got a heat game on Saturday and I am off. I don't know. I'm not going good, to good. go wide open go space on, you know, all of that jazz. Mark Sessler, this was uh tremendous and, I, I really appreciate your time. I'm looking at my whiteboard, which I haven't completely cleaned off, but this has been sitting there for six months almost. And my bucket list items for people on my podcast, Sessler. Good. Ranks at the very top, maybe third. The top. Well, you can just say the top. Like, I mean, it's, it's I'm not sure what's actually was, happening over there, was, but it was uh, the number. I actually rewrote it down on a piece of paper. So let's see. Um, Yes, I, you are third behind Bomani Jones and Bill O'Brien. Bill no, O'Brien. That's that's. Bill O'Brien. I don't have a problem with being third there. That's okay. We're good. Yeah, I, that's that's a that's a good that's a good room full of heroes. Mark Sessler, thank you so much for your time, for sharing your stories about uh, about Wes. Um, I often go back. I I look at the DMs because. Uh, he and I, he and I chatted more often on Instagram, just commenting on certain things. And, yeah. Uh, yep. he's like, I needed, you know, something about, uh, he needed, I think he was uh, having a chemo treatment and we were talking about beers or it was right after my ESPN sideline gig with major league lacrosse and the cannons one. And he'd said something like, yeah, I, I need a bourbon. That sounds, that sounds good to me. I, I oh, yeah. really wish I could have a drink right now. <laughs> I don't know. I just got this, uh, you know, chemotherapy running through my body, but uh, he, it will be, it will be West of us, Festivus in, in bulk as Rich Eisen says, you know? Yes. In okay. bulk. I like that. Yep. Yeah. West of us, Festivus in bulk. Uh, thank you so much. This was Oh, fun. thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And um, I hope you, I hope you enjoy the game and we'll, we'll talk again. Yeah.